Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. It's um, a universal, fundamental question that every human being asks sooner or later. Where do we go from here? What happens at the end of life? And the way it's worded, the way the question is asked, is, is there life after death? We're going to find out that that question is really misworded. It's not after death because life doesn't die. So if you're saying, is there life after death? No, what's dead is dead. The question is, what dies and what lives? Or more fundamentally, what is life? And what does it mean that life left? Where did it go? It can't just disappear. Nothing just disappears. Where did it go? So religion says... Well, there are two places to go, up or down. (laughs) There's no up and there's no down when it comes to life. Life doesn't take up space. So there's no up or down in terms of space. So what happens? To appreciate what happens when life leaves, we first have to understand and appreciate What happens when life comes? What does it mean that somebody is born? We don't ask that question. We ask, why do people suffer? Why do people die? Why are people born? Why do people have fun? Have we asked that question? Why is there pleasure? Nobody asks that. But why is there pain? So in order to understand one, we have to understand the other. So what does the Torah tell us? The Torah says, very descriptively, that when God created the first human being, he fashioned a body out of earth and then breathed into it a living soul. Which means the body doesn't come with life. The body is not a living thing. It's a hundred pounds of clay. Where does the life come from? That is something that God invests into the body. He breathes into the body a living soul. Now the rest of creation, if you remember, Everything else God created, he created by speech. God said, let there be, and there was. Only when it comes to the soul, when it comes to life, does the Torah say, he breathed life into the body. He didn't say, let it come alive. Let it live. The difference between speaking 
and breathing both involve breath. But what the breath you use for speech is the superficial, the, the, sup, the, uh, the, 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 the breath that exists on the surface or near the surface. And that's why you can talk endlessly and not get tired. At least I can. But when you're blowing up a balloon, just a little balloon, after a minute you're exhausted. It's not because you're using up more breath, but because you're using a deeper breath or an inner breath, the breath that is necessary for life. The breath you use for speaking isn't necessary for life. You can live without it. You can live without speaking. But the breath that is the breath of life, this, this you, can't, you can't afford to uh, exhaust from yourself because it's essential. So when God created light and God created grass and God created animals, he said, let there be. He used a surface breath, not a very personal inner but when he gave life to the human being, he breathed something from within himself into the human being. Very, very different. Now, if you're a little aware in scientific terms, Einstein came up with this brilliant insight where he says the universe is made up of mass and energy different kinds of masses, different kinds of energies. What he, what he discovered was that energy can become mass. It's like, like the expression, if you talk a lot, you're building a wall of words that keep people from getting any closer to you. So here is energy becoming a mass. <laughs> it's words, it's turning into a wall. So energy becomes mass, and mass can dissolve into energy. That does not include life. Life is not energy. It's certainly not electrical energy. Life is a completely different entity, different from mass, different from energy. What exactly is life? Life is a living entity that in the human being is composed of ten or more functions. We call it a soul. What is a soul? A living energy, a living being that thinks, feels, behaves. That's a human being, and that comes to the body, not from the body. So how does the soul come to the body? So we're told some fascinating things. King David says in Psalms, my mother and father abandoned me 
but God gathered me in. What is, he, what is he saying? What is he talking about? He remembered the moment of conception. When he was conceived. Holy people don't forget. So he remembered the experience of being conceived. Now, what, do you, what do you call the, uh, the conception? It's not even a fetus yet. An embryo? A zygote? I hate that word. <laughs> Cute little baby. Why would you call it a zygote? It's a pastnisht, you know what I mean? But whatever that little being is at the moment of conception, it is experiencing the most dramatic and the most traumatic moment of its existence. It has made contact with the physical world. Hasn't developed much yet in the physical, but it's made contact. So King David says, I remember when that happened to me. I was feeling a little helpless. And I looked around to see who's babysitting. Who's taking care of me? I looked at my father. He was sleeping. I look at my mother. She's sleeping. And here I am, <laughs> tiny little being, going through the most traumatic experience. I'm all by myself. But then I realized, no, God is there guiding my experience. And that reassured me, and I was able to continue to develop. Forty days before conception, the soul is told that it's going to be born. You have time to acclimate to the idea that you're leaving heaven and you're going to be born into the physical world. The soul doesn't like that. He's not thrilled by the idea. But it does have time to get used to it. So when does the birth of a child begin? Essentially, 40 days before conception. In the Torah it says, every time, every time a woman was given a blessing that she was going to have a child, it was always this time next year. Twelve months. Doesn't take twelve months. Not, not the part we know about. But it's more than nine months because there's time for the soul to get adjusted, to go from heaven to heaven until it comes down into the conception. Now, at the moment of conception, the soul is complete. Because the soul is never under, underdeveloped. The soul is always complete. Life is life. There's no partial life, a little life. But the physical needs time to grow and develop and uh, evolve. So at the moment of conception, the soul is completely matured. The body hardly exists. Which means 
when you have a baby, the first thing you do is completely spiritual. It's hardly physical at all. And that's why the education you're given in public school in how babies are made is so inadequate. It only describes the body. And at the moment of conception, the most dramatic part of birth, there is no body, or hardly, but there is a soul. So here's the shocker. From the moment of conception, the, inf the, the embryo hears everything, sees everything, feels everything, and understands everything, because it's a complete soul. And all of those activities are soul activities. The eye doesn't see. The soul sees through the eye. It hears through the ear. It speaks through the mouth. It thinks in the brain. It feels in the heart. But it's the soul doing it, not the body parts. Which means that when the embryo hears the conversation that the parents are having, it hears it better because it's not using the ears, because the ears haven't developed yet. When the ears develop and the child is born, now it's going to hear through the ear. It doesn't hear as well anymore. It hears better without the ear. It sees better without the eye. Some people say they've had out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences. They saw, they heard, they saw better. They could see three-dimensional because they're not using their eye. The soul is seeing without the eye, hearing without the ear. So it hears and sees better person in a coma, God forbid, same thing. They hear everything, they see everything. They just can't communicate to others. And we know this is true because there are people who were in a coma for two or three years and then they come out and they remember everything that was said in the room while they were in a coma. So there's a group in Israel, I think Yerushalayim, a group of women they're dedicated to visiting people in comas in the hospital. They will come and tell you what week it is, what Torah portion is being read this week, what it says in the Torah portion. And some of these people come out of the coma, and they're scholars. <laughs> they're Talmidei Chachamim. They know every parsha. Because when you hear without the body, you hear better, you remember better, you understand better. That's why at the end of life, the body is still perfectly intact, but the soul is gone. So the body hears nothing, sees nothing, says nothing. Because all those activities are life activities, 
that come from this living being called the soul. So it would be silly to ask, where does the soul get its energy from? It is energy. Where does it get its life from? It is life. That's like the comedian who says, what do batteries run on? The batteries need a battery? No, they don't. They are the battery. Therefore, the question, is there life after death, is not an appropriate question at all. Life does not die. It doesn't even make any sense. Life can't be dead. Just like death can't live, life can't die. So whether the soul continues on without the body, of course it does. A soul is a soul, it's not a body. So what happens at the end of life? The soul that was invested in the body separates from the body and goes back to where souls come from. So what does the body do? From dust, from dust you are, and to dust you return. So there's this famous poem, if I remember this correctly, it says, life is earnest, life is good, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. From dust you are, and to dust returneth, was never said of the soul. So what goes back to the dust? What came from the dust, which is only the body? Where does the soul go? Well, like everything else, it goes back to where it came from. Fully alive, with its memory intact, with its relationships in place, still devoted to the people that it was devoted to while it was in the body, and it continues to live. In fact, it continues to live better than it was in the body, because now it doesn't have to accept the restrictions of the body. So the soul of your grandfather in heaven hears you better, sees you better than before he passed away when his hearing and his eyesight were a little schwach. Without the hearing aid. So, the next step in the development of the life settling into the body, merging with the body, is at 40 days after conception. After 40 days of conception, the body has already begun to develop a personality. It's already either male or female. It's becoming a mensch. The next step after that is three months. The third month of pregnancy, the soul and body have really merged. The body is now alive. Five months is the next, and then birth. Concerning birth, King David makes another amazing statement. We've all heard this, but we didn't realize what, what the significance is. Even as I go in the valley of the shadow of death, I am not afraid, for you are with me. 
Everybody knows that psalm. What's he talking about? Where is this valley of death? And why does he go there? He was talking about the birth. He remembered being born. He remembered being conceived. He remembered being born. And here again, very traumatic. Scary. The reason it is so scary is because for the soul, this is a major change. The body doesn't know the difference. But the soul does. And when the soul goes into panic mode and is feeling contractions, the body of the baby also experiences the contraction of being born. So whatever happens in the spiritual eventually is reflected in the physical. The happier the soul is to be in the body, the healthier the body is going to be. So King David says like this, when I was going through the valley of the shadow of death, which means when I was being born, when I was in the birth canal, I had left a perfect life inside the womb. It's heavenly. I'm not yet breathing on my own outside the womb. It's a valley. It's a dip between two lives. Life in the womb and life outside the womb. And there's a little danger there. There's a touch of hint of death, a shadow of death. And it's very scary. But what kept me going was God's presence. I was not afraid because you were with me. If you read any of the descriptions of near-death experiences, Kubler-Roth, how does she describe it? You're going through a dark tunnel. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And there's an angel urging you to come into the light. Well, actually, that's a flashback to your birth experience. When you were being born, you were going through a dark tunnel. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. And there was this guy all in white urging you to come out. Because that's what he gets paid for. So when a person has a near-death experience, he flashes back to his original near-death experience. How does King David say it? Shadow of death. You're not dying. It's near death. People who die have a completely different experience. We don't know much about it because <laughs> they don't talk much. Now, it's still not over. After the body is born, there's again a 30-day period of merging, coalescing, body and soul becoming one. And that's why until 30 days after birth, a child is not yet, the baby is not yet considered viable. 
Only after 30 days is it a viable child. For a boy, there's also the significance of the eighth day. Before the eighth day, it simply is too dangerous for a circumcision. I don't know what the blood being absorbed in the body, I'm not sure. But until the eighth day, there cannot be uh, a, a bris. Now, the, the um, influence, the intelligence, the morality of your soul influences your body also in a growing and increasing fashion. By the time a girl is 12, the goodness, the holiness of her soul is fully settled in. For a boy, it's at 13. So life comes in gradual stages and merges more and more with the body until you can't even tell them apart. The body is alive. At the end of life, the reverse process begins. First, there's a premonition. Most people know 40 days before they pass away, they know it's happening. Some are more conscious, some are a little less conscious, but there's an awareness to think about tying up loose ends, saying goodbye to people. They don't realize consciously what they're doing, but that's, that's what's happening. Some people know exactly how long it's going to be to the very minute. So that corresponds to the 40 days that the soul is given just to get used to the idea. The body and soul then begin to separate in stages. It's not a total shock. For the first three days after the body and soul separate, the soul can't tear itself away. It's painful, it resists, it doesn't want. We sit Shiva, seven days, because for seven days the soul is fighting the separation. The first three days are the most intense, the, next, the, the second four days are not quite as intense. But the whole week, the soul is trying to hold on to the body, refusing to leave. So the Shiva, it turns out, is not really for our benefit to express our own grief. It's to stay in touch with the soul as the soul goes through its transformation. So the Shiva is like continuation of the funeral. Funeral means accompany the person to his resting place. That's the physical part. It doesn't end there. You don't just say goodbye. 
you stay in touch, in empathy with the soul. So when the soul is really in pain, you feel that pain. When the soul's pain lightens up a little bit, you lighten up a little bit. Which explains a very interesting thing. Why does the Torah tell us how to grieve? Grieve for seven days and then get up. Whoa, whoa, I need ten days. I need a month. I'm going to grieve forever. How can you tell people how to grieve? And what about those people who say, two days, enough? The Torah is not telling you how to grieve. The Torah is telling you how to remain in sync with what's going on with the soul you're grieving over. And that's why at the end of seven days, when the soul has pretty much made peace with the fact that it's no longer in a body, you're not being sympathetic anymore. So the Torah says, the Shiva is over. I mean, you want to grieve and you want to be sad about it. That's just your human reaction. But Shiva is over. Then there's a 30-day period, the Shloshim. The soul is still going through major changes. Now it has to get comfortable with being in heaven. And by the way, what exactly are heaven and hell? Unfortunately, we get more of a Christian picture than we do of a Jewish picture. Uh, hell is where the soul goes to be punished and it burns. It's roasted with pitchforks and demons. And How do you burn a soul? You can't burn a soul. The only way a soul can burn is shame. When you're feeling shame and your cheeks get hot, that's burning with shame. When the soul comes to the world of souls and it doesn't remember how to be a soul, it's gotten used to being a body. Maybe it still smells like a body and it feels really embarrassed and uncomfortable. That's hell. When a soul comes back to the world of souls after 120 years of being in a body and it just picks up where it left off and just goes naturally right back to being a soul among souls, uh, that's heaven. So heaven and hell are not a place. It's an experience. If you can just slip right back into heaven and be a soul like you were before you were born, that's heaven. If it takes time to readjust, that's hell. So hell is not a punishment. It's a necessary readjustment, a recalculating from the pleasures of the body to pleasures of pure soul. So you can have two souls sitting right next to each other. One is in heaven and the other one is in hell. Because one of them is perfectly comfortable, and the other one is like some people who walk into a synagogue and don't know which book 
or what side of the book, or when to sit, up, sit down and when to stand up. That's kind of hell. It's so embarrassing. So here is a soul, comes to the world of souls, and it doesn't remember how to behave like a soul. How long does it take for the soul to make that readjustment? Maximum 12 months. You know, souls are pretty smart. They catch on quickly, particularly when it's just going back to their original nature. So how long can it take already for a soul to catch on and start acting like a soul? If he's really dense and really thick, maximum 12 months. And that's why we say Kaddish for 11 months. We don't want to insult the soul by saying it needed the whole 12 months. We also don't want to shortchange it in case it does need. <laughs> so we go 12 mo 11 months because the Kaddish that we say helps the soul in its readjustment. So life comes in gradually, life leaves gradually. But what does it mean that it leaves? It moves on. It does not stop living. So we are told a number of interesting things about the soul after it's left the body. The souls always attend the weddings of their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This is their future. They're not going to miss it. So when at the beginning of the wedding ceremony we sing Baruch Haba, we welcome, people think we're welcoming the bride and groom. No, we're welcoming those souls who didn't get an invitation, <laughs> but they're attending the wedding. So we welcome those souls up to three generations sometimes up to 10 generations. They also attend every circumcision. The souls of your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents come to the celebration of their great-grandchild's circumcision. The other significant event is on, at the Seder on Pesach when you ask the four questions and you say, Tate, ich will bei dir fragen vier kashes. You address your questions to your father. And you do this even after your father has passed away. And when you say that, your father's soul comes to hear your questions. Now you can talk to your father at any time. But on Pesach, there's something special. The, the, the presence of your father's soul is so much stronger than usual because that's the father's role at the Seder. He's not going to miss it. So let me tell you a beautiful story. The previous Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, who came to America in 1940, when he was a young child, 
he discovered that he had a real gift for writing. When his teacher noticed how well he wrote, he urged him to keep a diary from the age of nine. Previous Rebbe kept a diary. And at nine years old, what could he write? His memories of when he was four and when he was five and when he was six. So we get a glimpse into the life of a Rebbe at a very young age, growing up in the home of his fa father, who was the Rebbe before him. His grandfather was the Rebbe before that. So here's the story that he records in his diary. When he would come home from Cheder every day, he had a vivid imagination. So when he'd come home, he would go into his grandfather's room. When his grandfather passed away, they left the room intact. His grandfather's office. There was a large chair, stuffed, you know, a big wing, wing back chair. He would climb into the chair and he would review the stories that his teacher told him in Cheder. And he would flesh it out. He would like really put in all the details to imagine exactly how it happened. For example, Yaakov, I'm uh, sorry, Avraham was sitting at the door of his tent and three people were coming down the road and Avraham ran out to greet them and asked them into his tent and they turned out to be angels. So he would come home after that and he would sit there painting the picture for himself, exactly what that looked like and how that... One day he came home and this was after his teacher had told him a story from the Talmud, from the Gemara. The Gemara says that Rabbi Yehuda, who was the uh, author of the Mishnah, or the editor of the Mishnah, when he passed away, he was granted a wish. Which mitzvah do you want to continue doing? And he said, I want to continue making Kiddush for my family on Friday night. And he was granted that wish. So every Friday night, he came back from heaven to his family, and he made Kiddush for them. This little boy comes home after hearing the story, goes into his grandfather's room, climbs into the chair, closes his eyes, and starts to draw the picture in his mind of, an, of a soul coming down from heaven, the sun is setting, it's Friday night, the candles are on the table, he peeks in through the window, everything ready, okay, he comes in, he makes kiddush. He, he gave it all the details and the color. As he's thinking this, he hears a voice in the room. He opens his eyes. His father, who was the Rebbe, is standing at his grandfather's desk facing the chair. He's standing on the far side of the desk facing the chair where his grandfather would sit and study. And his father is speaking and crying. And he's wearing his Shabbos uh, 
close with, with, with the gartel, like a formal prayer. Like a... and, this, and this six-year-old boy says, I thought I probably shouldn't be in the room at that time, so I just quietly snuck out. <laughs> he wasn't shocked. He wasn't surprised. The soul, when you need the soul of your father or your mother or your grandfather, when you need them, they are available to you. The holier they are, the more freedom they have to come and go into this world. Most souls are not given that permission. They can talk to you from a distance. They can't be sitting in their chair talking to you. But holy people have more, more authority. So the soul never dies. It can't. Life can't die. Life lives. And life is not the same as energy. It's a completely different thing. Energy can become mass. Life never becomes mass. Life lives. Which means that at this very moment, your parents' souls in heaven, your grandparents' souls in heaven, are completely conscious and aware of what's going on in the room right now. And they're probably quite pleased that you're here. Nothing embarrassing about that. And they worry about you. And they pray for you. They try to pull strings for you. So when something really amazingly good happens, remember to thank them. They probably made it happen. Because, you know, you didn't. So a little gratitude to our parents should never end because they never stop being parents. The third Rebbe, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, when his wife passed away, he said to his children, you lost a mother, I lost a wife. A mother is good from a distance too. A mother can be very far away and she's still mothering you, but a wife from a distance. So my loss is greater than yours. Which is true. The loss of a spouse is greater than the loss of a parent because parents don't go very far. They hang around. They come visit. They remain involved in their children's lives. So when we say Yisker, on Yom Tif, or when we say Kaddish, we're, we're talking to a living soul. We're talking to someone who knows whether you're talking to them or not. So people who don't say Yisker, uh, they're going to have to explain that to their parents someday. <laughs> like, where were you? I was there. You didn't show up. Maybe that's why so many people will go for Yisker, but for no other part of the davening. Because for the Yisker, the soul of your parents schleps you there. You can't say no to your parents. So what does all this tell us? The punchline. The punchline is this. 
When the soul leaves the body, it really doesn't want to. It fights, it struggles, wants to stay here. So that expression that you've heard many, many times, when somebody passes away, he's in a better place now, not Jewish. For Jews, there is no better place than here. Heaven, heaven is nice, really nice, comfortable, enjoyable, safe, holy, still not better. And the difference is, here we can serve God. In heaven, God serves you. It's a reward. We would much rather do the serving than be served. We would much rather be employed than retired, even if you get a gold watch. So the Jewish idea of heaven is, you go there if you can't be here. But we'd much rather be here. This is the best place. Which means that the souls in heaven are not resting in peace. They are impatiently waiting for this world to get its act together, to become a holier place, and then they will come back to this world. So as much as we want to see the world become peaceful, we want to see the world become holy, we want to see the world become a godly place, they are more desperate than we are. Because we can at least do something. Pitch in. Make it happen. They're helpless. We also don't have a fear of hell. I mean, nobody wants to go there, but if you got to go, you go. <laughs> like the guy says, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't know anybody there. I'd rather go where all my friends are. So we're not afraid of going to hell. We're all going. The question is only for how long. Will it take a week to make the, adjust the adjustment? Will it take a month, two months, five months? But we're all going. We all have to make that transition. We get really comfortable being a body. All of a sudden, you're not a body. That takes some adjustment. So it's not a terrible thing. If you can avoid it, fine. So this is the Jewish thinking on life and death heaven and hell. It all ends up good. No soul is ever lost or abandoned. Every soul ends up back in heaven. Got to go through a wash cycle, it goes through the wash cycle. Hot water, okay, hot water. But it gets cleansed. It gets free of the physical memories and it goes back to being a pure soul. And the more pure the soul is, the more it wants to come back to earth and serve God rather than be served. 
That's why we're looking forward to the coming of Mashiach, because as much as we would like this world to be beautiful, our ancestors in heaven, those that have been there for generations, for millennia, they are so impatient. They want us to get this world fixed up so that they can come back. So we know why Mashiach is an important issue. We also know why we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Souls don't like being in heaven. Not once they've been on earth. The real purpose in God's plan, the real purpose for resurrection is that every mitzvah we do couldn't happen without the soul because a dead body can't do mitzvahs. But at the same time, no mitzvah can happen without the body. You can't eat matzah without a body. You can't make noise with a gragar on Purim without a body. You can't light a Shabbos candle without a body. In fact, the body deserves more credit for the mitzvah than the soul. Because the soul only adds the proper intention. It's the body that does the mitzvah. So the question is, when the soul leaves the body, it goes to heaven and it is rewarded. Well, what about the body? When does the body get its reward? Never? That's not God's way. So the resurrection of the dead is simply a matter of justice. God says, you did the mitzvah when your soul was in a body and together you performed the mitzvah. So ultimately the reward will have to be when you are again in your body so that you can be rewarded in the same way in which you did the mitzvah. So the resurrection of the dead literally means your body, the one you did the mitzvahs with, that has decomposed, will recompose, come back to life with its soul and receive its due reward for the mitzvahs that the two of them together performed. So it's not simply a matter of poetic uh, concepts of bodies coming back to life. It's a matter of justice. It would be wrong for the body not to be rewarded. And the only way it can be rewarded properly is with its own soul back so now we have a whole new dilemma. We know that we've had other lives. We've been here before. That's called reincarnation. If you've had many lives, which body are you going to come back to? It's the same soul, different bodies. So which body are you going to come back to? Some people say, you get to choose your favorite body. As 
Some people say you can choose the best features of each body and kind of put it together, like a Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> that would not be justice. Justice means every body that ever did mitzvahs needs to be rewarded. So you can't pick just one body. It's got to be every one of them because every body you were in performed mitzvahs. So the soul has to divide itself and go back into the body in which it was most successful. So what's going to happen after the resurrection when you are now five different people and you're sitting at the table together? <laughs> All five of you? What a family. So uh, we're very grateful that God is in charge of that project because it's a little overwhelming. Keep track of who's who when they're coming and going and which body, which soul, for which mitzvah. Even the biggest computer would not be able to handle this project. But we look forward to the coming of Mashiach because making the world holy is not an option. It has to happen. Well, it's not optional. It has to happen. The world was created to be holy, and we are the ones who are supposed to make it holy. So every mitzvah we do, a little more holiness. Every good deed, even, even a good intention, creates positive energy in the world, which makes the evil go away. And that's why every time, God forbid, there's a bad event, an evil event, a tragic event, our response is, we need more goodness. We can't let that start to spread. We need to increase the goodness in the world until it completely displaces all the evil. We've been at it for 3,330 years. We've made some progress. We don't necessarily see it yet, but it's all there. We've planted all the right seeds. The question is, when will it start to show? That's what we mean when we say we want Moshiach. We want to see the fruits of our labors. We've devoted ourselves to this project through fire and water, through thick and thin. Nothing stopped us. Nothing will stop us. So, where are the results? Where are the fruits? We're getting a little impatient. So Moshiach means the world has matured, the world has become what God envisioned, and we did it. We were his agents. And when the world becomes positive and beautiful the way it's meant to be, no soul will remain in heaven. This will be greater than heaven. So they will all want to come back, and that's the resurrection. So it's all one little package. It all hangs together. It's all necessary, not wishful thinking. And that's why we're still here. We don't live in fantasy.
We outgrew that a long time ago. We know what we're doing. It's real. We should all see very soon, very quickly, the end of our project, the completion of our project. The world has got to get good. It's got to get good. And when it does, we'll be able to say, we did our share. We added our mitzvah to the huge pile of mitzvahs. And if you think that you feel good about it, imagine how good your father and mother, grandfather and grandmother will feel about it. That's the story of life from a Jewish perspective. What do you think? No, I really meant what do you think? <laughs>